Last uh, week, I'm going to kind of recap a little bit. We had uh, uh, a, a problem with our uh, video and our audio. So uh, people were going online saying, hey, this thing wasn't posted last week. Well, it wasn't because it went down. So I'm going to do a little bit of recapping. Take us back into um, where, where we find John on the island of Potmas, right? So Potmas, we're kind of thinking about, is an island about 40 miles out into the Aegean Sea. And, uh, and John is a prisoner there, right? And uh, one of the questions that came in last week, and uh, by all means, you know, feel free to, to, to write and just hand me off your questions. One question, good question, someone said, well, if he's a prisoner on this island and he's writing these letters, how do the people get them? Because they got to get off the island, right? And it's a good question. Uh, but the way, the way that uh, prison worked in those times, you had... You had prison cells that you could be locked up in that were very small um, holding cells that uh, pretty much prevented you from, from having a lot of communication with the outside. But a lot, a lot of imprisonment was more similar to what we would call house, house imprisonment. So, so John is on this island, uh, but he, he has some freedoms, uh, one of which is to communicate back to people uh, in uh, in Ephesus and the surrounding area. So it, the, the letters would have been written and, and under permission they would have been taken off the island and delivered appropriately to the, uh, to the, to the, to the uh, uh, churches that he's naming. So uh, when you think about him as a prisoner, he, he even has freedom, right, to worship. That's where we kind of meet him is it's the Lord's day and he is, he is worshiping. Um, Kind of made a mental note last week that as he's worshiping, the, the first sound that he hears, what, what tells him that Jesus is present, is the sound of a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And um, I always think about that, that the last sound that will be heard on planet Earth uh, will be that sound of the trumpet that comes. And so, so in a very real sense, symbolically, as he hears this voice that sounds like a trumpet, what is it signaling is, I'm, I'm going to tell you about this end time. The time is, is coming. And I'll reiterate this um, as we go through our study together. You know, Jesus is there to give, to give John uh, a picture of what's coming. And uh, what he's there to talk about is what, what is happening from that point where he came into the world as a baby to that point where he will return again. And that's the time frame that is being signaled here. As, uh, as John now hears this trumpet sound and turns around, and we begin to, to get these, these word pictures of what he sees when he looks at Jesus. And I, I'm going to go back through a couple of these and just highlight them for you. Uh, go to verse number 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay? Remember, the lampstand is, um, is something you would find when you would walk into... The, the temple was supposed to be the church. And so symbolically here, uh, the lampstand is the, is, is the presence of, of Jesus. Remember, it's a seven-fold lampstand. Uh, and it's likewise the presence of what? The Spirit of God. Uh, the lampstand has oil that stays lit, that provides right fuel for uh, the church. And so what he's seeing when he sees these seven lampstands, he's, they're, they're representing the, the churches, the, the body of Christ on planet Earth at this time. 
So it's the first thing that he sees is, is are these lampstands rep- representing the church. And then he says, one like a son of man who is what? Walking about these lampstands. It's, it's a way of saying Jesus is the Lord of the church. Okay. Um, I won't spend as much time on this this week, but uh, last week we looked at that title. I looked and I saw one amongst the lampstands who is like the Son of Man. And that title uh, is just significant. It's, it's, the, it's the, the name that Jesus uses for himself when people would ask him, Who are you? I'm the Son of Man. For a Roman, if I came up to you and said, Well, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of Man. You'd say, okay, um, I, I'm a son of a man too, right? Uh, but for, for those who follow Jesus, that title was something that they would be highly aware of because it takes us back into the Old Testament where Jesus is equated with God. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, is where the title originates. Uh, anyone who says that Jesus never equated himself with God uh, completely misses the boat. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a, a book study. Well, I guess it was last year I did a book study uh, on a book that was written by an is- Islamic author. Uh, and he was talking about Jesus. It was just simply titled Zealot. And in the book, he goes, uh, he puts his thesis down. He says, you know who Jesus was? Jesus really never equated himself with God. He was just this guy who was gathering up a group of people to come against Rome. And uh, when, whenever anyone says that, I want to say back to them, you don't, you don't know your Bible at all. Because I guarantee you that everybody who receives this letter and hears it read for the first time and, and hears this symbolism, here are the seven lampstands, the churches of God. One amongst them who is like a son of man immediately says, that's the Messiah. That's the one who is incarnated or who is uh, enthroned by the Ancient of Days to establish his dominion forever and ever. So that title is what uh, signifies uh, Jesus who is walking amongst the lampstands. He's looking at his church. The next words I think are kind of, kind of cool. As he sees the Son of Man, he's clothed in a particular way. He's clothed with, notice these two things, a long robe and a golden sash about his chest. Significant. Why? Okay, take those two symbols. Put them side by side. What do they mean? He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. Okay, so the long robe would symbolize the high priest. Okay, so, so John is saying, when I looked at him, I can see who he is. He, he's the son of man. He's the, God, he's, he's the one that the Ancient of Days in, enthroned. Here's how he's dressed up. He's got this, this high priest robe on. But across the, the high priest robe would be a golden sash. Now, would, would a high priest have a golden sash? No. So what's that? So the golden sash signifies what? It would be the clothing of the king. Now, I, I want to put those two thoughts together because it's, it, it's actually a part of the picture of who Jesus is, and it's, it's actually quite beautiful. He's saying, when I looked, I saw Jesus, who is a priest king. Go back in Old Testament days. In Old Testament days, the way that God established his, his church, you could be a priest, 
right? You'd come from the Levitical family. Or you could be anointed a king. Get the or there? You can be a priest, or you can be a king. Do we ever see in the Bible somebody who is a priest king? Only once, right? Only one time. And you see it back in the Old Testament, shows up again in the New Testament. You see this very strange figure that appears, this guy who is named Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, if you remember the story of Melchizedek, Melchizedek is this strange figure who shows up and um, uh, addresses Abraham. And Abraham meets him and does something quite odd. He bows down before him and he pays him a tithe, gives him a tithe. He never shows up in the Bible again until the New Testament book of Hebrews. And so people are always asking the question, well, who is Melchizedek? Because all the way back in the time of Abraham, he's identified as a priest king. He's both. He's a priest and a king. When you get to Hebrews, we're told that Melchizedek is someone who, whose country we don't know. He, he has no origin. And, and so you, everybody asks the question, well, who is he? Who is this strange figure of Melchizedek? His name is interesting. Mel, in Hebrew, means what? King. So uh, at Christmas time, when I run around greeting people, one of my favorite greetings is Tov Yom Melech. That's how a, a Jew might say Merry Christmas. Great day of the king, Melech. Okay? Mel Zedek, the last part of his name. Zedek means righteousness. So when Abraham greets Melchizedek, he is meeting the king. Where are you the king of? Zedek. Where are you from? Nope, he doesn't name a, a city. He doesn't say, I'm from Jerusalem. I'm, from, I'm the king of righteousness. That's who I am. And so you, you go all the way back over into the New Testament, and you find him again in the book of Hebrews. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you just turn there with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 7, where we meet up again with this strange figure uh, named Melchizedek. Okay. So chapter 7. Um, let me just kind of read through this quickly, and then I'm going to try to make a point uh, stick for you guys. Here we're being reintroduced to Melchizedek uh, for the first time after the Old Testament. It reads as follows. Just go with verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means what? Peace. It's not a place. Uh, priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, of peace. Think about that, king of righteousness and peace. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy. Interesting. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Whoa. Who was that guy who showed up on planet Earth before Jesus in the Old Testament to whom Abraham bowed down. No country of origin, no father, no mother, no beginnings, 
no end of days. Wow. Who is that Melchizedek? Some people say an angel. It's an angel of God. Representative of Jesus Christ, who later will come, who will be a Melchizedek. Interesting. Let's go on. It says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. See what's happening there? He's taking tithes. Who is it that takes the tithes? The, the Levites, the priests. He's a king priest. Hmm. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He just is. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's significant. He's, he's saying to Jews that Levi himself, the father of the Levitical priests, in his father's womb, paid tithes to this king of righteousness who had no origin. Interesting. Now look at Jesus. Now, verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change in the priesthood, it is necessary that a change take place in the law as well. Go to verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it was witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus. Okay. Now what's significant about this whole thing? What kind of king is God? He's a servant king. Most kings rule how? With an iron fist. You will obey me. You will follow my law or I will crush you. What does the priest do? The priest absolves you from all that you've broken in the law. When Jesus is pictured as a priest king, he is the high priest who is giving his very life to set you free from the requirements of the law. And so you have this very beautiful picture that's, that's, that John is seeing when he turns around and he looks at the trumpet voice. He says, oh, you're a Melchizedek king. You're a king. You have the sash, but you're our priest. You're the one who gave your life for us. And so immediately what John is knowing as he's looking and seeing this figure in front of him is, that's the son of man. That's Jesus. The king priest, that's Jesus, the one who came to give his life for us. So what is the king priest doing? Take a look. Verse 14, back in Revelation. I looked in the head of his, the hairs of his head were white like wool. They were like snow. Again, a reference back to, to Daniel. 
His eyes, I think these next words are important. His eyes were like flames of fire and his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So I look at him and what do I see? I see this king priest who's identified as God, Jesus, whose eyes are burning through me and whose feet are like burnished fire, the kind of burnishing that you would get out of a, refine, a refiner's fire, right? You'd pull bronze out. And now, and now I, I hear his voice starts off like a trumpet, right? It's like the voice of roaring waters. It's pretty easy to miss this, but I, I think there's something significant about this. All caught up in this word, refined. What is Jesus coming to do? Refine the world that he made. Okay? He's coming to refine the people that need to, to, to follow him. He's coming to refine, most and foremost, who is he coming to refine? The church. Jesus is walking amongst those lampstands in his churches. His feet, his eyes are looking into the church. You can't hide anything from them. His feet are like burnished fire. I'm going to refine my church. In fact, I'm going to remake it. I'm going to remake it. I love those words. Um, his voice was like the roar of many waters. And, and I don't know if you can hear it. But the second I hear those words, and I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in John's place, now his voice is like... When, when do... When do you hear that sound in the Bible for the first time? Genesis chapter 1. What's going on in Genesis chapter 1? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of what? Many waters. All right. What is God going to do? Remake. Remake his church. That it's able to endure and do what it's purpose to do during the time period that is taking place all the way up to his coming. He is the great refiner. Okay? Now, how do we know that? Next line. Take a look at his right hand. What has he got in it? Seven stars. Now, in just a, just, just a couple of verses, uh, we'll be told what those stars are. John, in this moment, just looks and goes... Whoa, okay, I hear that sound. I see those feet. He's refining. He's got some stars in his hands. What are those stars? I'm not quite sure. I look at his mouth, and what do I see? A sharp, two-edged sword. What's that? What does that symbolize? A sharp, two-edged sword. Some pretty famous places we get to see swords in the Bible, right? Genesis chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of the, 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 the tree, good and evil? Remember there was a second tree? The tree of life. And God said, you know what? So that you don't continue to live forever in this state of fallenness, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to encircle the tree of life with flaming swords. You'll never be able to get near it. I'll protect you from it. It's a famous sword scene. Ephesians 6. We'll take a look at this during the Lenten season. You have the sword of the Spirit. The sword that he's talking about here, this sharp two-edged sword, is a sword of judgment. 
this refiner is going to come to judge the world. I need to get my lampstands, my churches ready to bring as many people to me prior to that judgment takes place. Okay? Again, you kind of pick this up back in the book of Hebrews, the two-edged sword. You pick it up in Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to take just a quick look at that. I always like to look at these words. For Hebrews 4, go over to uh, verse number 11 and following. Here we read this. Um, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay? Um, talking about the Sabbath rest, the endless rest that God will give to us, eternity. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Powerful words. Think about what that sword is representing. It's a God who says this sword cuts to the point that it separates spirit and soul. I had to have this conversation with one of our, our young youngsters this morning. I said, think about this. You have a spirit, right? A pneuma. Pneumatas. That's your breath. <sighs> I'm alive. <sighs> this sword goes funk. And it separates that, your physical life, from your soul. What's your soul? That's who you really are. Okay. This sword judges not you not on the basis of, of what you see outwardly, but what I see inwardly. Right? To whom does your heart belong? Um, this morning we were talking, I said, it's kind of interesting. People in our world today talk about death. One of my pet peeves. Someone will say to me, hey, did you hear so-and-so died? I'm like, what do you mean? People are like, well, they died. I'm like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. They died. I mean, oh, you mean their body stopped working? Because guess what? Your soul never ceases to exist. You never die. You are your soul, right? It will never die. There's not one moment of time when your soul ceases to be or stops in any way, shape, or form. So I say the sword of God is what cuts through and, and, and separates our spirit, our physical life, from our soul. And so you have this Jesus whose eyes are boring, boring through us. His sword is looking what? At our hearts. What's going on? Okay. Now, now here's what's kind of interesting to me about that. If, if, this, if these lampstands are churches... And what Jesus is doing is, I'm going to refine my church. Because there is a day coming when I separate soul and spirit. The function of the church during this whole period of time until he comes again is to do what? To bring people to him. What Jesus is looking at is he's asking of the church, 
Are you doing that? Are you ready, prepared to do that in the last times? Okay. Now, here's what's here's what's scary to me as a pastor to be to be just be. I'll just put it on the table with you guys. Is when Jesus looks at any church, okay, what is he seeing? And, I, and and to be honest with you, when I look at a lot of churches, here's what I see. I'm like, okay, this is this is an organization, and this organization is spending. $2 million a year or $9 million a year or whatever it is, and they're having, you know, uh, uh, this kind of event and that kind of event. But the bottom line is, at the end of the day, here's my question is, are there people outside of a faith relationship with Jesus Christ who are being brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Those eyes are looking at this body. And, and Part of what I want us all, us all, me included, to feel throughout the book of Revelation is not a God who just is here to condemn his church. That's not the point of Revelation. But it is a God who comes to say to his church, I will refine you. Because I have one function for my body here on earth until the day that that trumpet blows. I will recreate you if I have to. Because I've created you to do one thing, and that is to bring people to know me as Lord and Savior. And I like to tell pastors and, and leaders in the church this all the time is, when you read Revelation, there is no gamery in it. It's not a game. It is a John who looks at this Jesus, and he sees his grace. He's a priest king. He serves me. He doesn't judge me by the law. He judges me under the cross. But he is a God who absolutely takes very seriously what his body here on earth is doing. And so you know what John does when he sees him? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Can any of us stand before that picture? No. When you look at him and you see those eyes burn through you, isn't there a sense personally, I mean, I'm asking you, isn't there a sense personally in which you say to yourself, oh my gosh, you see my thoughts. Aren't you, aren't you glad that we can't like uh, put a hat on you, like here's a little hat for you, and then it puts your thoughts up on the screens in church? I mean, I'm kind of glad you guys don't get to do that. Like, this sermon stinks. I'm like, I knew you were thinking that. I knew it right now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Some of our thoughts, oh my goodness, um, our hearts. Oh, you know what? When, when you, Jesus is out, you're like, oh my goodness. I, I can't stand before you. That sword cuts through. It, it separates fact from fiction. You know, I can't stand before you. God. The same thing is true of the church. You know, as, as a church body, um, you know, I sometimes think about this. There are about 6,500 and some odd Missouri Synod Lutheran churches across the world. And one of the questions I'm always asking is, how are we doing at bringing people into faith relationship with Jesus Christ? If you took, if you took the composite budget of all 6,500 of them and added it up, I mean, we're spending millions and maybe, who knows how much money. How many people are we bringing to know the Lord? That's the eyes of Jesus as he walks amongst these lampstands. And his promise is, I'm, I'm coming back. Trumpet's going to blow. And so I will refine my church. I will recreate it so that it is ready to do the work that I've called it to. John falls down on his face. And Jesus comes to him, this priest king, 
and with his right hand touches John, and he says two words that I absolutely love. He laid his right hand on me. Notice that? And what does he say? Me fobu. Do not fear. Okay. Um, I was asking a kiddo this morning, I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of the word phobia? And they're like, mm, not really. I'm like, well, it's like a fear, like if you have an acrophobia, fear of heights, right? If you have an arachnophobia, have a fear of spiders. I'm like, do you have a fear of spider sex? No. I said, would you pick a spider up? No. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what do you have a fear of snakes? I'm like, okay, would you pick up a snake? I'm like, no. Well, here's, here's Jesus, and he says, may do not phobu. Don't have a phobia here, right? Don't, don't be afraid. Don't have, a, don't have a fear of me. And then he begins to speak, and some of these words are just absolutely stunning to me, this picture of Jesus. He says, I am the first and the last. Okay. I kind of like it when I read it, when I read it here. I am the first and the last. All right. So uh, here's how he says it here. Ego and me who protas hai eskatas. And there's something that's a little bit deeper here when you hear those words. I, I am, I, the I am. Okay. It doesn't show up in your English Bible very well, but it's here. Ego eimi, I, the I am, am protos, the first cause. I caused it all to come into being. Did Jesus create the world, by the way? Did he create the world? Is it a trick question? You guys are like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, who do we usually say created the world? God. We say, God the Father created the world. Well, did God the Father create the world? Yes, he did. Did Jesus create the world? Well, he's, he's part of the Trinity, so he creates the world. But then there's a beautiful passage in Colossians chapter 1 where here's what it says, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, it's, it, it's, it pulls them out. It says, here's Jesus. All things were made by him and were made for him. And you pick it up here. I, the I am, and the first cause, and ha Eskatas, and the last cause. I will cause things to change. That's what he's saying here. I, the I am, am the one who is first and the one who is last. And the living one, the one who will always be alive. He says, I have died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I kind of like those words uh, here as well. I am alive uh, forevermore. Because, again, it kind of picks it up a little bit differently here. Uh, see if you can catch this, by the way. Here's what he says. Um, okay, now here's the words I want you to hear. Uh, Ionios. We get our English word age from that. Time frame, time period. Okay. So now picture yourself standing beside Jesus, and here's what he says. I will be with you until the end of what? The age. This is the word. The Ionios. Okay. What does it mean? We're right now in an age, an era. We're in the fallen era. And that's what he's saying. I, I am the one who's going to be alive always into the age of ages. There's another age coming. This age will have its end. When will it end? When the trumpet sounds, when I come again, I will take this world and I will destroy it. And I will recreate. And there will be beginning of a new age. 
So I am with you always until the end of this age. And then guess what? I am with those who follow me forever and ever and ever. The beginning of the new age. And it's really picked up here. You don't see it as well in your English, but it's just, it's right there. Uh, I am the one who is alive and I am the one who am alive forevermore. He says, I have the keys to death in Hades. I have authority over it all. I'm going to stop there for just one minute and make a comment. I have the keys of, I am the one who has authority over death and over Hades. Someone asked a really good question last week, and I, I kind of picked that up. I thought, okay. Um, throughout all of Revelation, you, you get this picture of Jesus who has authority over his creation. And we're going to be, we're going to be seeing that uh, during this age, the one that we're in, uh, there are some hard and horrible things that take place, right? And so I, I said a couple of weeks ago that when you look at Revelation, one of the points of it is that everything that's going to happen, everything that is happening, can only happen underneath his authority, good and bad. So someone asked the question a week ago. They said, well, do you mean that God just authorizes hard stuff to happen, or does he cause hard stuff to happen? Well, the reality is both. There are some things that he authorizes. He says, this is something that I've said in motion. I've, I've authorized it to happen. Okay? There are some times where God actually causes some things to happen, including death. And so, so I'm asked this question. Somebody says, well, if, but wait a minute. If God causes or authorizes the killing of people, is that not murder? Thou shalt not kill. How many of you know this, that in the Bible there's many places where God kills people? Is he a murderer? Did he break his own commandment? No. Because it's all caught up in this Hebrew term for murder or kill. There, are, um, there is a, a, a significant difference between that word, murder, and what you'll see God do with some degree of frequency, namely the execution of his judgment. Okay. There are two times, really, where you'll see God take human lives. In one case, it is God enacting his judgment upon people or authorizing that. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve fell, God looked at his creation and he says, I'm going to put a curse on my own creation. Why do we have hurricanes? Why do we have tornadoes that kill people? Why do we have tsunamis that come smashing into a city and all of a sudden 50,000 people are killed like that? Why? Because God authorized it. When? All the way back at the fall. All the way back at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said, okay, Adam and Eve, you sinned. Hold out your hands. Bad. Now I'll put it all back and we're just going to go back to the way it was. He did not. He said, because of your sin, all right, I must now cover you. And remember, he covers them literally with a, a, the, the sacrificed skin of an animal. Okay? He says, but I must cover you in a different way. I will send a child into this world who will be that sacrifice that will cover you forever. And until that day, this world that I've created will remain under a curse. So when when... 
you know, when I open up the paper and I read the story of here are these people that went to church and a tornado came and while they were in church, killed them all. To, to people who are outside of, of, of faith, they look at that thing and they're like, well, what kind of a stupid thing is that? What kind of a God would do that? Would kill his own people while they're in church? I'd say a God of love and mercy. People are like, what? I'm like a God of love and mercy who put a curse on his world for a reason. Why did he do it? Because it's through that curse, tornadoes, tsunamis, all these horrible things that happen, that guess what God does? Draws people to himself. Apart from the curse, what does God know about Adam and Eve and all of, his, all of their descendants? What will they do? Go back to the same pattern over and over and over and over again. God says, I'm going to cause you, cause you, to need me. And so I'm going to execute this judgment upon the earth. Is it a right judgment? Yes. Why? Because I told you, Adam and Eve, not to eat of that tree, lest you, what? Die. And so God is executing his judgment upon the earth through a curse that will continue until that curse is, is lifted. That's the next age that we will come into, right? So does God murder? No. Does God execute his judgment that he righteously placed upon this earth? Yes. Are there other times that God kills? Yes, there are. When? Well, there's times that God kills as an act of war against his enemies, right? And so God says this, that I will enact war. I, I the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. And so there are times when God will actually cause a whole city of people to be wiped out. Why? It's an act of war. Is it murder? No, distinctly different. It's a God who has said, these individuals have come against me and I will remove them from the face of the earth. That is my judgment upon them. And so when you look at God, there's a big part of us that looks at all of the stuff that's going to take place in Revelation and we can't help but say to ourselves, well, God, stop. Why are you going to let this stuff happen on earth? And God says, because I... I am going to use all of it, every last bit of it, to draw people back to myself. That's his intention, is to use it all to draw people back to himself. So you kind of get that wrapped up here, where you have this God who is saying, I'm the God into the age of ages, the one who has authority over, over death and over the grave, Hades. Um, by the way, Hades... When you trace its origins and, and see how it's used, both Old Testament and New Testament, sometimes can just refer to the grave itself. But in this case, I believe more. Because he already, met, he already specifies death here. I have a key over death, right? There'll come a day, God says, in the next age, when I will take death. Remember what? This is kind of funny in the Bible. Remember what he says what he's going to do with death? At the end, in the next age? I'll make it my footstool. It's what, it's what us guys put our feet up on for the Super Bowl, right? He says, that's what I'm going to do to death. It'll be my footstool. I'll abolish it. But he says, I also have authority over, and this is important. This is really critical. Hades. Hell. During this whole period of time that we're in, the battle that's taking place in our lives and in the church is a spiritual battle with the forces of hell. 
So as, I just want to, I want you to, as Jesus is walking amongst his lampstands, guess what he's saying? Hell surrounds us. You can't see it, but hell surrounds us. Are there times when demonic forces are working on you, your marriage, your family, your life? Absolutely yes. If you could flip a light switch and see them for one second, you would be scared to death. But here's the good news. While God authorizes fallen angels to possess, oppress, tempt human beings, they are all under his authority. They're on a leash. Their, their abilities are limited by him. So why does he even let them do it? Why does he even allow the devil to have free reign here on earth? Because God says, I'm going to use that. I will use that in my people's lives. I, I think of it this way. We're walking amongst the, the lampstands. We're looking at the church. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times I can look at, look at a church and say, you know what? Hell just showed up. Satan just showed up. And he's trying to take the church and move it away from what God's called it to be. And so what Jesus is saying here is the one that, that, that John looks at, he goes, he is a priest king, comes in grace. He is the God who will refine his church, remake the world and all that is in it. He is the God who will take us into this next age. And so what he's really concluding with as he looks at this is he is, he is going to say, what is the God of the church going to do with his church in this last time. Okay, let's, let's close with these last words and then I think we better wrap up. So it says, Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are to take place. As for the mystery, this is where we'll pick up next week. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden stands, the seven stars are the angels, we'll pick up with this next week, of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, um, walk away with this. Any church, this body of people gathered together by Jesus Christ in this place and this time, your lap stand. What John is saying is, I want you to look at who Jesus is. He's watching you. He's walking amongst you. What does he want for you? In his grace and under his mercy, he wants you, his body, to be a body of people who are at work bringing people to him until that last trumpet blows. And he will be refining his church as he goes. There's, that's unmistakable when we begin chapter 2. And we begin to look at the first letter that he writes to the lampstand, the church, in Ephesus. We'll pick up there next week.